I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. Safe, sustainable, and equitable mobility solutions. That's what this is all about. With the climate situation as it is right now, plus many other factors, it's never been more important for us to continue to improve the sustainability of the way that we're moving goods and people. At the same time, we need to improve safety for drivers and pedestrians, and we need to get these solutions in the hands of the people who need them need them most. So that's what I cover. Primarily interviews, I'm talking to the people who are developing and implementing, covering these technology solutions. Also, my day job, this podcast is brought to you by FEV. FEV is your complete vehicle engineering partner for sustainable energy and mobility solutions. We're the engineering technology partner behind a lot of what you see on the road and elsewhere. Shoot me a note if you want to learn more. Check out FEV.com. Check us out on LinkedIn. Today's guest is Tarek Bolat. Tarek is co-founder and CEO of GPR. So GPR recently changed their name. They were WaveSense and they're built around this technology called ground positioning radar. So if you're familiar with assisted and automated vehicles, you know a typical sensor suite includes camera, radar, LIDAR, and now we're talking about ground positioning radar. So as in the name, it's using the same principles as the other radar on the vehicle, but this is focused actually underground. So this is a system installed on the underside of a vehicle, and rather than looking at features above the ground, it's it's picking up features underground. So it's... Uh, it was originally developed for military applications, so as off-road applications, there's some unique benefits here, but then also it's, it's really valuable, or they, they claim it's very really valuable for a variety of reasons for on-road applications as well, including everything from passenger cars to trucks. So obviously we go in in-depth talking about the technology and its uses and the benefits and all, all of that. And it was also interesting, so to Targ's background, he was previously executive vice president for the Renewable Energy Trust, and he has a background in venture investing and management consulting, MBA from Harvard, and it really interesting kind of a business-minded individual as well. So I, I had a lot of fun picking his brain and getting deep into some of the uh, the commercialization aspects and what about this technology. It was interesting for him from a, a business perspective, how they're thinking about growing and, and all of that type of stuff. So really fun conversation, I think. Uh, yeah, interesting technology Tarek was a great guy to talk to, so please enjoy my conversation with Tarek Bolat. Today's guest is Tarek Bolat. Tarek, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Brandon. Great to be with you. Yeah, this is a, a fun discussion here, and I think not it's related to, but not not specific uh, to anything that we talked about on the podcast, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. So can you, uh, I guess, first explain a bit about uh, GPR and, and what you're doing? Sure. GPR sort of fundamentally uh, and at its core is the world's most reliable and accurate vehicle positioning system. So we do that in a very, very novel way. But if you're a vehicle or, or an autonomous vehicle um, uh, operator uh, or saw, developing a software stack, you can view us as a positioning input the same way you might with a GPS, um, just with much, much better results that are much, much more reliable. The way that we're creating that position, uh, which is quite unorthodox, is rather than looking around you, as you might with a, a LIDAR or a camera, um, focusing on things like lane markings or, or trees or buildings or signs, or looking at the satellites as you do with GPS, um, we pioneered a way to image the subsurface and map the subsurface with something called a ground-penetrating radar, um, building reflections off of things like changes in soil type or soil density, roots, rocks, cavities, changes in concrete. Um, 
And that is creating a fingerprint that you're then able to match you and generate your physician uh, without regard to anything going on on the surface. And what that means is that you can do vehicle positioning in inclement weather. So snow, uh, rain, fog, all those current conditions that the autonomous vehicle companies tend to avoid um, and where ADAS systems tend to break down, mm -hmm. uh, confusing lane markings, anything like that. Um, we're not looking at the surface. And so as a result, we're not reliant on it or subject to sort of changes. Yeah, and I, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of room to dive in here, which I'm looking forward to. Uh, but first, just, just to put this in context, so an automated or even assisted um, driving application, right? So it needs to know where the where the vehicle is and then it can make <clears throat> decisions about what to do based on that and then it can actually execute and i think i don't know it, most of the attention seems to be placed or a lot of the attention on kind of the uh the latter aspects of of that the kind of decision making and uh, what leads to that because it's closest to the actual execution but this uh i think this lane positioning and uh positioning in, in general is a, a topic that is critical in actually successfully executing any of this that's absolutely right. Localization, you know, the industry term is, uh, is a key pillar of safe and reliable driving as is perception and planning and so mm -hmm. on. And so the, I think you, you alluded to this, the, uh, the natural thing kind of using humans as an analogy is to look around us and try to make sense of our environment like that. Can you, what was the process or how, how did someone get outside of that and think to look under the ground? Yeah, it's a great question. So the origin story of GPR actually lies at MIT Lincoln Laboratory, federally funded uh, military R&D facility you know, based around the corner from us here in Massachusetts. Um, and the technology was originally developed for automating military vehicles, uh, doing localization for military vehicles. Um, and there was uh, a little bit was published on that. Uh, and that had caused a groundswell of interest from automakers some of the autonomous, early autonomous vehicle um, projects. Uh, and so the company GPR was then uh, created to commercialize that technology and really broaden the impact of what, uh, what, it, what it could be. Mm -hmm. um, the process, whether you're automating a sidewalk robot or a, a passenger vehicle or a military vehicle, still has the same building blocks. And so if you're solving a problem in one, you're oftentimes solving a problem in the other. Uh, and indeed that was the case uh, for, for GPR. What, uh, what application segments are currently your focus? So we're very focused at the moment on two primary segments. ADAS and AV, I call that kind of one segment, even though the, the applications are, are a little bit different. Um, where we're putting this into, we're working with some of the largest automakers in the world to put this into uh, high volume vehicles for things like um, autonomous lane keeping, uh, autonomous valet parking, so parking car parks itself in the, in the garage, for instance, um, and some other applications that I can't share publicly right now. And then on the AV side, really building a robust enough model where you can drive a passenger experience that can take the safest and most efficient route uh, and that those two are sort of one and the same. Mm -hmm. uh, and build utilization for an autonomous vehicle. So a lot of people, I think, focus on vehicle sensor cost when they think about a level four robo-taxi. Um, but in fact, utilization, being able to carry a fare, uh, you know, nearly all the time is a key driver of the economics uh, for, those, uh, for those businesses. The other is trucking. So there's been a lot of sort of, uh, you know, enthusiasm around this recently. 
Um, and indeed, you know, WaveSense is, is a part of that, helping sort of class eight, class six trucks stay in their lane uh, on some of the long haul routes that are being built up right now uh, in an autonomous capacity. And for these these different applications, is this your, your GPR? Uh, I don't know technology. Is this replacing existing sensors? Um, adding, working alongside them, or how how does that incorporate into the system? Yeah, that's a great question. So, typically, in a passenger vehicle, it's not replacing a system; it's closing performance gaps uh, that exist today. So, whereas you know, you can think about your the car you, you might drive today, whereas that only works when you have clear line of sight on lane markings. Um, uh, uh, a vehicle equipped with WaveSense does not need to have not, does not need to have that that limitation. But so, would you expect um, they would still have cameras, radar, and lidar in addition to the G- WaveSense GPR technology? So, on a, on a passenger vehicle, cameras and radar, yes, lidar. I think it's an open question. You know, we've seen, started seeing a little bit of that um, so far. Um, in an autonomous vehicle context, some of the uh, the partners that uh, we're working with today believe that they can knock out some of the LIDAR cost because they can eliminate basically part of the field of view hmm. that's doing most of the localization work. Uh, and so obviously you still need LIDAR for doing perception, um, but uh, the, the reliability of the GPR product is so strong that anything that is dedicated exclusively to localization or any any subset of a field of view that is um, dedicated exclusively to localization uh, can be eliminated. And how about for the uh, the medium heavy duty truck application? Is it re- replacement or uh, kind of supplementing the existing sensor suite? Yeah, th- I would think of this as becoming sort of the bedrock positioning system, not necessarily um, replacing uh, replacing camera or lidar uh, or or radar, um, but making the economics of that business model work again utilization being really important if you're running a long haul route you need to make sure that that route is is continuously in operation carrying freight um wave sense is one of the core technologies that uh, that enables that yeah maybe worth diving in there real quick so this i don't think this is an area i've given a, a ton of thought but so thinking of i don't know if you, there's a desire on the economic side ultimately to re- remove a driver um or at least whether it's a platooning application or whatever, remove some percentage of drivers from the truck. You really, that, that only works with the assumption that the truck's able to complete its route there and back continuously without, I don't know, a, a snowstorm coming in and stranding at someplace, right? So is that, is that the type of thing that you're talking about where theoretically introducing the kind of robustness against weather conditions allows you to uh, remove a lot of the, the risk from applying a, a technology like that? Um, that's certainly one of the aspects that uh, that's part of the GPR value proposition. Another one is that uh, for things like lane marking, so you don't want to be reliant on having clear, um, well-painted, unfaded lane markings to operate the vehicle. Uh, still a third, and this has really become a you know a big deal, I would say, over the last six months in the autonomy community, um, is something called functional safety, or making sure that you're able to be robust enough um, uh, on some of these sort of critical safety, you know, um, safety of life applications. And so the introduction of a, uh, of an input like GPR, which is independent of the rest, which is uncorrelated from the rest is incredibly powerful in building that, um, that functional safety case, 
uh, you know, for, uh, for operation. Yeah. And could you, you speak to that uncorrelated aspect? So it, I'm certainly not a functional safety expert by any means, but my, my understanding of one of, one of the core tenants and like the, for automotive applications, ISO 26262 uh, framework is redundancy and allowing that if yeah, something goes wrong someplace that you have a backup in place. So could you speak to when, when you're talking about an, an uncorrelated failure between your system and other systems? What does that actually look like and what's that mean on the vehicle? Sure. Let me just give you sort of a lay example. Um, so a LIDAR and a camera and a forward-facing radar uh, are all looking at the surface, not at the same exact objects, not in the same exact way, obviously with different phenomena, mm -hmm. but um, they're looking at surface objects. And so when those fail, they're failing correlated ways. Again, not perfectly correlated ways, but, you know, if a... Um, if a truck pulls alongside you and blocks your field of view, it's likely blocking your field of view for the LIDAR, the camera, and the forward-facing mm -hmm. Um, However, with WaveSense, uh, you know, you would still have very robust positioning even if that truck were to pull, you know, to block those fields of view. So yeah. that's sort of a simple example of, it's they're failing and succeeding in uncorrelated ways. So if you have failure on the surface train sensors, um, you're not going to have it with the uh, with the subsurface train uh, sensor. Similarly, if WaveSense, you know, let's say you you uh, drove over a long metal plate or something like that, um, that shouldn't cause an issue for the surface train sensors because they're looking at you know, the, the world overview. Yeah, yeah, and that uh, I don't know, maybe this isn't going to make this is going to further cloud it for some people, but in my own mind, I think of like the the finance or the the stock world where you're you're trying to ideally have an uncorrelated profile where if I don't know, the price of gas goes up or down, it doesn't make all of your seemingly different uh, segments that you're in uh, in sectors move in the same direction, it seems. I know. That's right. Kind of the, stakes, the, stakes are, the stakes are much higher here. But yeah, <laughs> same, uh, same principle. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So can we talk uh, in more detail about how this uh, the technology actually works? So I understand you're, you're mounting something underneath the vehicle and you said you're looking underground, but can you talk more about and what's, what's actually being done here? Sure. So the uh, GPR uh, mounts our sensor underneath the vehicle. Um, it's operating in very low frequency bands. And we are then creating a map of the subsurface as we drive. So drive across a lane, uh, that's creating a map of that lane. Mm -hmm. And then subsequently, you're able to match to that map um, with radar images you're creating in the tracking phase. Uh, and generate your position as a result uh, of that match. Um, and so that's, you know, you can think of it as, as frame matching as you might with other types of technologies. We're just doing it in a totally new domain with a new layer of data that's never been tapped before. So maybe my first question then, so does this, this mean like for, for your technology to be applicable? I don't know, on I-75 outside my, my, uh, outside my house, someone needs to, come and that road needs to be traversed at least once to kind of get a baseline map in place. Is, is that how it works? That's exactly right. It's a map-based technology. And so you create, you know, what we call prior map, um, and then you're able to track to that thereafter. Now, one of the benefits uh, that uh, of this technology, and we've been working on this with the automakers who are really excited about it, is that after you've created sort of core set of maps, let's say, you know, the interstate system, just to use your example, um, passenger vehicles are then able to continuously expand that map and update it. Oh, so yeah. the product is continuously getting better. 
Uh, so, you know, let's say I live, you know, somewhere in the suburbs uh, at the end of a cul-de-sac where it may not make sense to send a mapping vehicle, just to make up an example. Um, but if I drive over that, uh, that uh, lane enough, I'll be able to lock in a map that can then be propagated to the rest of the, the, the fleet. So like in, in practice, that would look like, I don't know, if you're in, in the middle of quote unquote nowhere that you wouldn't have a map. I don't know if you, you buy a vehicle and the first few times you drive it, you need to have your hands on the wheel because you're developing that map, but then it could theoretically learn and take advantage of, of that technology for uh, future applications for like assisted or automated driving. Uh, yeah, that, that's right. So you'll always have that core set of factory loaded maps uh, and then uh, there'll be over the year updates expanding that coverage. A large part of those updates are being generated by users themselves. Gotcha. And then how about uh, how how stable is the underground maps once once you do get a, a map in place? And, and I guess part of this is answered by what we were just talking about and that theoretically it's it's continuously updated as you have enough vehicles driving. But I, I assume something like an interstate, you're not really the profile is not changing too much with the, the, the dirt and root system and all that type of stuff. Or how does how that work from your perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. You're really intuitive and, and one of the big benefits of, uh, of GPR. So um, just thinking about what you want in a map to do reliable localization, you basically want three conditions. You want there to be a lot of features that you can see. Um, you want them to be differentiated. You want them to look different. Mm -hmm. um, and you want it to be stable over long time periods. And so hitting on that last one, um, one of the benefits of GPR is that it is indeed stable over a very, very long time periods, you know, geologic in some cases. Um, and so you don't have the map maintenance burden that you do with LiDAR and camera-based maps where they grow stale pretty quickly and you have this continuous need to update the map. Um, you know, with the GPR map, you've got a very, very stable layer that's only really changing, you know, if you're doing utility-based work, you know, such utility-based work. Mm -hmm. playing fiber, water, gas, that sort of thing. Um, uh, and similarly, uh, you don't run into the issues of, you know, feature desert. So you can imagine driving on an interstate and it's just totally wide open. Um, that's a problem for um, vehicles that are relying only on LiDAR and camera-based vehicle positioning systems. There's nothing yeah. to map you need to refer to. With GPR, you, are, you always have a visible set of features that are differentiated and are stable over a long time period. So yeah, I think that makes makes a lot of sense, and I'd be uh, curious to go down this rabbit hole. We can only go as uh, as deep as you want. But so, what are the when when you're talking to potential customers, what are the first few kind of uh, issue or potential issues that they they raise, and and how how do you address those? Yeah, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of issues, the first things that we typically talk about are you know one around reliability. You know, how does the reliability of the system work? Um, why does it work that way? It's almost like an educational, mm -hmm. uh, you know, set of conversations. Because this is a very different technology with a very, very different approach. Um, similarly, they ask about map building. How does core map building work? And how does it work, work excuse me, when, um, when users are, are generating the map? How does that cycle sort of look like? Um, and then third, really like when we do, you know, we do a lot of um, integrations with, uh, with automakers and tier ones and uh, you know, potential customers like that. And in those cases, uh, they're really just looking at performance. How does this perform against 
uh, you know, a, a range of scenarios that are that they view as gaps in their product roadmap today. Gotcha. Um, again, whether that's weather, whether that's certain types of terrain, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not a uh, certainly not an ex- expert in the in this field either. But one of the gaps I, I, I tend to think about is like construction zones, right, where you you get in the the road uh, is deviating for for some reason. I would assume based on my understanding of how your technology works, that depending on how that correct, I mean, if you're just sliding from one lane over to another, I assume that's not a problem, but are there situations where those construction zones continue to cause problems, even if someone has a a GPR system? Um, You wouldn't expect them to cause problems if you could perceive your perception system to to see a construction zone or that you either had some other way of flagging that a construction zone was coming up. Okay. Because you have, you know, you're, you, you've got a continuous map, GPR map, you know, across, across the road. Um, so, you know, GPR, that's not, that's not sort of a failure point for, for GPR. Okay. Gotcha. And uh, I, I, jumping all over the place. So yeah, I, I think linear conversation flow isn't necessarily my, <laughs> my strength here, <laughs> but uh, okay. Can we talk a bit about your, your background? So how did you get into this and uh, how did you get started with uh, GPR? Yeah, so um, I had been building a to- built business in a totally different area in renewable energy. Um, and after we had exited that, uh, those projects, so solar and wind projects, you know, very, very large scale, um, started uh, doing a pretty structured search around high impact technologies and autonomy. Um, and ultimately learned about what my co-founder, our, our now CTO, uh, gentleman named Byron Stanley had been working on at MIT Lincoln Laboratory. Uh, and really felt it was by a wide margin the most differentiated approach uh, to driving a step change in in autonomy uh, that mm-hmm. that existed. Um, you know, it wasn't sort of an incrementally better lidar, a slightly better camera system, different way of doing simulation. Uh, it was a fundamental shift in perspective about how to solve the problem. Um, so we linked up and uh, you know started talking about how to how we might build a business around this, uh, this kind of core technology, uh, ultimately had a very common vision, uh, complementary skill sets, and, uh, uh, and decided to, to make the jump and start GPR. What do you, uh, I don't know, thinking back when, when you first started, what was your hypothesis for where the main applications were, or where you were going to be able to uh, really create a market here? And has that changed over time? Or, and if so, how? Yeah, it's, that's a great question. So they, they really were then as they are now, you know, around ADAS and autonomy for the simple reason that if you think about autonomy, like you wouldn't buy a car that didn't work when it was raining or snowing out. Um, uh, and you're not going to take a robo taxi ride if you don't have full confidence that that vehicle is going to be able to deliver you safely uh, to your destination. And so it seemed... Uh, back then as it does today sort of a core solving a core gap that takes autonomy from uh a kind of uh, a, a project to a really really big sector sort of a global global uh new sector mm-hmm. um on a massive massive scale and so and i and i think that that was probably the problems we were we are solving were less uh were sort of less in vogue back when we started gpr but now as some of the other problems have been solved and still, you know, the uh, gaps exist between uh, where we are today and rolling out a big autonomy based business um, and product, um, 
we've seen just a tons of, uh, of uptake from automakers and others uh, for GPR because we're solving those problems that are now front and center for them. Yeah. And as we were talking a little before starting to record it, I think it personally, it seems like a good time in the well, autonomous vehicle hype cycle for uh, a technology like yours to gain some, some more traction. And that uh, I think most people who thought this was a relatively easy problem that would be solved and we'd be on our way. And by now we'd all be driving um, fully automated vehicles. I think are realizing that this problem, despite all the great work that's being done is much more challenging than, uh, than we've, we've previously thought, or at least some people previously thought. So it, it, at least from my perspective, seems like maybe a good time to come in and say, hey, here's a technology that should be able to significantly improve the reliability and the feasibility of solving this problem. That's right. So what, uh, how, how about, is there anything in particular that you've learned or like, it, so it sounds like kind of the, the direction of the company hasn't changed, but is, is there anything while working with the big automakers, tier ones, et cetera, that has led you to kind of uh, change course or that, that you've learned that surprised you at all? Gosh, surprising learning. So, um, you know, first and foremost, I feel like we have tried to learn uh, as much as possible um, from other startups, from the scar tissue of other startups that have been working in automotive uh, uh, with respect to working with the big automakers and tier ones, working within their processes. You know, these are long product development cycles um and uh and, and they're very very process driven uh and for some you know high-flying startups you know they, that can feel antithetical to their nature uh and so we've been sure to bring in you know automotive talent you know from the junior engineer level all the way to the board uh board level uh in who can who can you know inform the decisions that we make you know other things that are really interesting is you know one of the reasons GPR uh, is sort of attracted to a certain segment of, uh, of, of the auto of folks within automakers is that it doesn't have the design impact, the aesthetic impact that some of the other mm. sensors do. Yeah. Uh, that's actually, you know, that, that's a heated debate as you, as you get, you know, toward production, uh, if you're fortunate enough to get there, that becomes a heated debate. Um, uh, yeah, I still, still haven't seen a great packaging for a LIDAR. There you go. There you go. Um, uh, you know, similarly, it's just interesting to see the spread of, uh, uh, of uh, appetite for new technologies across the automakers and tier ones, who's really charging in, you know, jumping in feet first, um, uh, who's kind of holding back, uh, you know, as, as well. Yeah, we're uh, so speaking of this long cycle, like, I don't know if you guys think in terms of like TRL, TRL technology readiness level, but uh, either in that those terms are some other way. Could you share kind of where the technology currently sits? Yeah, so we are, uh, product is very robust. We are basically in evaluations with automakers right now where we integrate the, the GPR product onto their vehicles uh, and go and do a bunch of uh, positioning, you know, evaluate positioning against a bunch of really tough scenarios, uh, you know, ahead of a production decision. Gotcha. Yeah. And would you, uh, so it sounds like maybe full scale, high volume production hasn't kicked off yet, but is that something that right. you guys are ready to kind of dive in if, if and when the order comes? Yeah, we expect to, uh, you know, as, as many of our sort of, uh, auto tech sensor startup peers have done, we expect to partner with the tier one hmm. on packaging and, and manufacturing uh, gotcha. yeah. on the technology and those conversations are, are happening today. 
how about uh, so back to kind of your your personal perspective and background. So my understanding is, you know, you're you're less on the uh, technical engineering background and more on kind of the the business, you know, venture. You said you mentioned you you had a previous exit when you come in, um, and it your your co-founder is really on the technical side, uh, as I understand it. So could, could you speak to kind of that that relationship and what you feel your uh, your past experiences have brought and kind of the, the key things that you've tried to lean into to uh, maximize the, the odds of success? Yeah, I mean, I think the aligning on vision, you know, starting a business, you have to be aligned on vision with your uh, with your co-founder and have a really open and transparent relationship with that with them. Um, and indeed, that, that's the case you know, here uh, here at GPR. Um, you've also got to really um, let each person, this is not just sort of with co-founders, but with the team in general, work on what they're good at and have a high level of, of trust there. So you know, we can paint the overall vision at where we're going, what the goals are, what the plans are. Um, but ultimately, you've got you to gotta, uh, understand where one, one has to understand where one's confidence stops and someone else's uh, begins. Uh, and as, you know, as, as the organization scales and becomes more successful, it's even more important to do that uh, and be able to understand what you should hold on to and what you need to let go of. Yeah, and it's, I don't know, I think often uh, frowned upon or like looked, looked upon for someone to acknowledge and kind of lean into their strengths because it can be seen depending on how you do it as kind of boasty, braggy, um, et cetera. But from a self-awareness perspective and building a team, it's, it's critical to understand kind of what you do so that you can fill in your gaps with, with other people. So with that being said, what, what is, uh, what do you think is your biggest strength or something that uh, you think you kind of uniquely bring to the table? Gosh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, uh, maybe perseverance. I mean, this is something that is, that is, uh, common across, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of startup founders, especially in our sector where we are, ta- you know, taking on big, hairy problems, really bold agendas and ideas, uh, and the arc, uh, of the companies, uh, is long because the impact is huge and we're inventing totally new ways of, uh, of, uh, of doing things in big sectors. And so making sure you've got that heads down perseverance, uh, you know, regardless of, uh, of what happens is important. Um, similarly, I think sort of, um, you know, narrative building or storytelling, being able to paint the picture of where we are today and where the company's going, why that's a critical piece of the puzzle in our sector is, is really important. Because um, again, we're not like, you know, this isn't an enterprise software business where we're where we're measuring monthly, um, you know, monthly uh, user growth, for instance, monthly recurring revenue growth. This is something that we, we're developing a really large business on a totally different product for the long for the long term. Um, and sometimes you can't quantify that in a uh, weekly basis or a monthly basis. Yeah, and it's funny when you were uh, when you first said perseverance. I think my next question was going to be okay. I think that's. Uh pretty challenging to do when you're working with such long timelines and trying to feel like you're actually making progress towards something. But I think you kind of answered it with the, with the second part there where yeah, have, having a story, or at least it seems like having some type of story and whether it's, it's metrics or some way to define, Hey, we're, we're actually making good progress here. We're, we're working and moving towards the goal that we've defined seems to me like it's, it's kind of a critical part of uh, keeping that motivation and perseverance from the team. That's right. Any uh, any particular 
tips or thoughts from your perspective on kind of the storytelling aspect and, and how to do that well within a team? You know, I mean, I think the, uh, the most critical part is to sort of uh, be able to explain two things. Where is the market or the product that we are, uh, that we are building into going over the long term? Um, and why, why is this filling critical path gaps there? Uh, and then why are we the most uniquely uh, suited set of people in the world to solve that? Um, and that uh, that uh, that tends to be to me the two key pieces of the uh, the puzzle, uh, and I and I don't want to say I don't mean to like throw shade on the term storytelling in that it's not um, it's not true. These are things you have to have high conviction on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know it's uh, it's something that you need to believe in, in your bones, um, and as a result, have the team believe it as well. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like. Uh... I don't know, something I kind of lead into, I forget where I heard this, but the, the idea that uh, a kind of a true confidence doesn't necessarily come from just telling yourself that you can do something. It's often looking back and finding proof in what you've done in the past and saying, hey, actually, this is this is why I'm going to be successful here. And that's kind of where that conviction and confidence comes from. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're, you know, at, at GPR, we, we strive to really be sort of a Part of our, I think, confidence comes from from some humility, which is that we are a continuous learning machine here. So it's okay to make a mistake once, uh, provided that there's a feedback loop there, and we're all able to learn from that and not mis- make make a mistake again. And when you have that, you know, compounded rate of learning in in a company like ours, um, it really makes for incredible results. You know, over time. Yeah, and so you spoke about uh, kind of the importance of having the the vision and the understanding of the industry that you're going into. Can, can you speak a bit about where you're seeing the ADAS AV market now and, and where it's going? Yeah, so two two very different markets um, for ADAS, uh, which I which I you know will define as autonomous features on passenger vehicles. Um, you know, driver always in the loop and aware, although the features themselves can be um, autonomous. Um, what we are seeing is that car makers are increasingly marketing their vehicles on the software and hardware enabled capabilities around autonomy, let's call it. Um, And so there's a desire to really create, you know, a heroic product experience, sort of a magical product experience uh, around some of these autonomous features. Uh, and WaveSense is helping. Sorry, not WaveSense. GPR is helping uh, to power uh, to power that uh, for some uh, some automakers. On the AV side, um, you know, I think the the core questions now, as we've seen some deployments happen, which is which is amazing amazing milestone to hit, is um, how will we as a sector build a product that can work both for the passenger or the customer, you know, in the case of freight, um, uh, and also can work for the provider in terms of the unit economics of, of the ride. Uh, and that's where GPR is getting pulled in and saying, okay, how do we make this a continuous experience with uptime that is significantly better than it is today? Yeah, and maybe feel free if you can't talk in detail here, but on the AV side, so there's a few application so so for example kind of the uh i don't know the uber type uh uh, taxi service essentially 
there's the last mile delivery, middle mile. Uh, if you expand last mile, it's also like sidewalk robots. Uh, there's heavy duty trucks are kind of kind of getting there. Um, what what are the most exciting applications in, in your mind, or or if you don't want to talk in that those terms, like what are the what are the attributes that make an application an application in the AV segment kind of exciting or promising in your mind? Yeah, so for from a GPR perspective, we look for a couple things. We look for sort of the the boldness of the partner in that in that specific application. Uh, how big do they want to go? How quickly? Um, and then how much value add do we believe the GPR product brings to that uh, that specific application? And so when when I look at the the markets you you talked about, um, we've seen a lot of interest basically in what I would call, you know, metro area AVs. So making um, making sure that within a metro area, a fare can be taken from point A to point B in the most efficient way possible. Um, uh, similarly, we've seen interest in last mile from like, um, you know, what I'll call logistics companies, uh, I guess you might call them, um, last mile delivery. So, you know, if I'm delivering a package, let's say, um, in, an, in an urban environment where you have really challenging GPS uh, environments, um, really challenging sort of LiDAR and camera-based environments, how can, how can the logistics provider ensure that, uh, that the vehicle can, can negotiate that scenario um, in a way that makes sense? And, and then lastly, uh, uh, we see it with like the long haulers. So, you know, uh, class eight trucks, class six trucks where you're operating through the night, inclement weather sometimes, um, and you need to be able to, to keep that, uh, that equalization up. And those are interesting because um, you know, similarly, when you're, when you're learning to drive as a human, you know, the, the highway is sort of the simplest environment in a way um, to operate on. And so, you know, I think there's a, there's a widespread belief that uh, scaled autonomy will arrive first in, uh, in sort of trucking settings. Um, and so that's exciting to us as well. Yeah, and I, th I think part of it, and I'd, I'd be curious to get your perspective here, but the uh, sales pitch from a company like like yours is a uh, is very different when you're coming to someone and saying, "Hey, here's here's data. This is here's a positive ROI. You're going to pay for the self, assuming that you can improve the uptime by a certain percentage. You're going to pay for itself in two and a half years or something like that." Versus going into the big automakers and saying, "This will help. We don't know how much necessarily that users are going to pay for it because no one actually knows for sure what how big that market is for kind of the the ADAS um, applications." So. I think the, the value offering might be overall roughly equal, but it, it at least seems from my perspective, like the, uh, the sales process maybe is, is at, at this time is much more streamlined for some of those commercial AV applications. What, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think you can make, um, you know, you can, you can think of it as like a, a B2B pitch uh, where you can quantify or you can attempt to quantify the, uh, uh, the business results sort of the ROI, as you mentioned, versus a consumer product where uh, it's a little bit more squishy. Now, the thing is with, with ADAS systems, we're talking about tens of millions of vehicles. Uh, and so uh, the volume that we are targeting with some of our automaker partners is significant, really significant. Mm -hmm. Whereas with autonomy today, while it will be a giant sector over time, still very small volume, yeah, small, small market. Um, 
that said, you know, as you mentioned, I, I, uh, you can make the case that if you drive utilization from 80% to 90%, here's what the delta in, in the economics looks like. Um, and, uh, and that can be a pretty, you know, pretty concrete sales pitch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I'm, so, so we also work with, uh, with automakers on, on the ADS side and it's, 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 uh, yeah, it's, there's a lot more variables there, I guess, is all, is all I can necessarily say. Yeah, that's right. Cool. How about anything? Uh, I think we talked about some of the key points. Any Anything else in kind of your, your typical uh, overview or whatever that you would provide to a customer that you wanted to make sure to uh, to cover that our audience uh, understands here? Um, let's see. Well, you know, I think you know, th- thing one is that um, we're really excited because GPR is sort of, I, I think, driving a shift in perspective in terms of what is actually possible in, in autonomy. So, you know, we think of it as like today's autonomous systems tend to replicate human cognition in one way or another, you know, field vision, decision-making and so on. GPR has done this said, actually, we need to tap into a new layer of data that isn't available to the human if we expect to get anywhere close to human levels uh, of performance, let alone exceed them, you know, by a wide margin. Uh, and so I think that's a, uh, an important paradigm shift that GPR is driving. Hmm. Um, and I think that's really started to resonate again, given the um, you know, halting progress uh, of autonomous vehicles uh, over the last 10 years. Uh, that's an argument that I think is really resonating both with automakers and AV companies, uh, which is that how can we pull in new sources of data that can give us an advantage in terms of safety and performance? Thank you. So why... Uh... What, why in your mind is, is that so important? So I, it, I think from the one perspective, uh, and I think that the case that certain companies have made is, uh, I don't humans can drive with a certain data set. Theoretically, we should be able to drive with that same data set. My intuition is that just we're, we're not able to match the same level of processing and decision-making, at least as of now. So despite the fact that we might be exposing a uh, autonomous vehicle to the same level of data that the driver has, we're not able to utilize that data as well. So that's where it makes sense. If you can increase the data sets, then you can converge on a, uh, a solution that does the same thing that the human driver does. It, is that at all aligned with your thinking or how do you think? About yeah, that? that that does. I mean, I, I, I don't really buy the argument that because humans can, uh, can drive with a set of data that's available you know, uh, visually, uh, sonically and, and what have you to them that uh, that we should therefore be able to design a, a, a system that can replicate that. You know, there's a lot of leaps, <laughs> you know, big, big technical leaps uh, that, uh, that are baked into that assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's like a convenient, convenient heuristic, but I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's true necessarily. Um, and so for me, it's really about, okay, if we want to launch these products that are going to save, you know, millions of lives over time, uh, as quickly as possible. Let's really think about what are the different uh, sources of data that we can pull in uh, that are going to be able to deliver insights uh, that can kind of get us there, um, and not have not simply think in terms of okay, if I'm trying to replicate how a human would do this, you know, how would I do that with a machine? Yeah. And how about circling back to the, the beginning of the conversation? So we talked about the, the roots of the company in the military space. Um, it's, it seems like off off-road applications military if you want to talk about potentially agriculture construction mining type applications 
I, I all theoretically still attractive? Is that something that maybe is is not as prioritized right now, or are those still on your radar? Yeah, um, great question. So, um, you know, first and foremost, uh, for off-road context, we're doing work with some of the large pickup and SUV platforms for doing off-road applications. So, you know, very, very high volume uh, platforms here in North America. Um, similarly, it's a common product development roadmap for the most part for doing automotive or for doing mining or um, agriculture or warehouses or airside operations at an airport, for instance. Uh, and so all of those uh, are definitely in our roadmap. Now they're much smaller, they're much lower volume for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, you know, we need to weigh when to enter those markets, but, you know, I probably field, uh, you know, a few inbounds per week from some of the leading lights in those sectors, uh, asking us, uh, if we can uh, work with them on you know, XYZ warehouse uh, application or forklifts or, yeah. you know, mining vehicles, what have you. But may- maybe tough, uh, I guess, as a, from a cost perspective to be too attractive until you're able to reach that automotive scale. Well, you've got to, you've got to, it's also a matter of maintaining focus, right? Here, here at, uh, at GPR, which is that, um, you know, we're sort of one team focusing on a common goal, uh, executing against a single plan. Uh, and so one of my jobs is to make sure that we don't get too distracted um, by uh, by other opportunities yeah. uh, or that we get distracted at the right time, maybe is the right way down yeah. the road. Uh, yeah, gotcha. So I think the, the last real question I have, so I, I ask every guest, uh, is there any book or if you want to expand that to kind of you know, any form of content, whether it's a movie, music, magazine, et cetera, but, but something that you've read or experienced that has had a significant impact on you um, professionally or, or personally, what would you think? Gosh, um, you know, personally, uh, uh, maybe one or two examples. I think you can read, it could be professionally also. Um, you know, if you look at Tocqueville's Democracy in America, uh, it's a really interesting study on the beginnings of our country and you can see the through line between you know what was going on then why that was unique and different uh and uh and some of the things that make uh, the u.s such a unique place to uh, to live and work and and uh, build companies today similarly i mean it's a good lesson for companies which is that you know the the initial culture and tone that is set um can um can impact that company, even as it grows to thousands of employees, uh, for sure. Uh, and then a personal favorite, I'm totally unrelated to business, but something I think you know, folks should read if they're inclined is um, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard. Really just a beautiful rumination on uh, nature and wildlife uh, and some of the, uh, the natural beauty that surrounds us you know, throughout the world and that we oftentimes kind of take for granted and overlook. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that one before. I'll have to, I'll have to check that out. Cool. Well, uh, Tark, I, I really, really appreciate you you taking the time to talk to this. It's been a lot of fun. I think uh, uh, learned a good amount. It's kind of cool thinking about this automated assisted driving problem in a, through a different bit of a different lens. So it's uh, ex- exciting to hear what you guys are working on. Any last, I, I guess I'll, I'll make sure to link to know, your LinkedIn profile and um, website and such. And any kind of last minute uh, message you want to get across 
place you would send uh, a listener who's interested to learn more or anything like that? Sure. Folks can go to gpr.com, uh, which is our website to learn more. Uh, and always feel free to get in touch with me uh, as well. Like I said, we are building a totally new product uh, and working really closely with some of the uh, the large automakers. And so we'd be exciting to, excited to talk to any potential uh, um, recruits that wanted to, to join us in our mission uh, and any potential customers as well. Very cool. Well, Tark, thank you for the time. Thanks. Take care, Brandon. The Future Mobility Podcast is brought to you by FEV. For more than 40 years, FEV has been a global leader in the development of mobility solutions for the transportation industry. With a team of experts passionate about innovation through the design, development, integration, and validation of turnkey vehicle and propulsion system technologies, FEV is your partner for the development of future mobility solutions. I'm your host, Brandon Bartnick. If you want to learn more or get in contact, share feedback or questions, the best place to find me is on LinkedIn at Brandon Bartnick. Thanks for listening.